Section 24 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Piotr Natel. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 6. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. The Rise of the Hanseatic League, A.D. 1241, by H. Denica. Part two. The Hansa ships were usually round-bellied, high-boarded craft with one mast, and flew the pennant of their home port. They were comparatively broad and built of heavy planks, and could easily be transformed into war-vessels by furnishing them with a superstructure known as the castel, castle, in which catapults and archers could be placed. In size they were probably as large as the trading vessels which cross the Baltic today. That they were skilfully handled is evident from the fact that a contemporaneous report mentions a trip from Ripen in Jutland to Amsterdam as having been successfully made in two days. As regards the laws of navigation, a point especially noteworthy was the talent displayed in organizing fellowship unions. Reference is not here made to the habit of the merchants in sailing in squadrons so much as to the peculiar institutions which regulated the life on board institutions which have recently been justly designated as the most perfect expression of that executive ability which characterized the close of german medievalism an account of these institutions dating from the middle of the sixteenth century has fortunately been preserved as soon as the vessel was upon the high sea the crew which consisted of the captain and the quote unquote, ship's children pledged itself strictly to obey orders and equitably to divide any booty eventually secured a court of sheriffs was then organized, consisting of a judge, four sheriffs, a sergeant-at-arms, a secretary, an executioner, and a several other officers. Thereupon came the proclamation of the maritime law, upon which the eventual judgment of the court was based. The tenor of this law was as follows. It is forbidden to swear in God's name, to mention the devil, to sleep after the hour for prayer, to handle lights, to destroy or waste food, to meddle with the duties of the drawer of liquor, to play at dice or cards after sunset, and to vex the cook or annoy the crew under penalty of a monetary fine. The following are some of the penalties inflicted for various offences. Whoever sleeps while on guard or creates a disturbance between decks shall be drawn under the keel of the vessel. Whoever attempts to draw weapons on board, be they long or short, shall have the respective weapon run through his hand into the mast, so that he will have to draw the weapon through his own hand again if he would free himself whoever accuses another unjustly shall pay the double fine prescribed for the offence charged and no one shall endeavour to take revenge upon the executioner upon the completion of the voyage the court resigned after dispensing a general amnesty and partaking of bread and salt in company with the rest of the crew Upon landing, the monetary fines which had been collected from delinquents on board were presented to the lord of the Strand for benevolent distribution. On arriving at the end of his journey, the merchant was confronted by new difficulties. It not infrequently happened that the master of the port visited by him had, within the time elapsed since the departure of the vessel from home, fallen into strife with the respective Hansa town, whose ensign the vessel bore as newspapers and dispatches were at that time unknown it is not difficult to conjecture the difficulties with which a merchant had to contend 
Moreover, he required an exact knowledge of local conditions and of the legal rights accorded him, which were different in each city, and always inferior to those of the native inhabitants. Today, as a rule, a foreigner, wherever he may be, enjoys the full benefits of the place he happens to visit, equally with the resident citizens. It was not so in the days of the Hansa, and hence the constant endeavour of the League to obtain firmly established offices or bureaus abroad. At an early date such a bureau existed in London under the name of the Stahlhof, another at Novgorod under the name of the St. Petershof, and still others at smaller towns in England and the Netherlands each having its peculiar privileges, customs, and mercantile usages, but all possessing in common the invaluable right of settling any difficulty affecting the members of the League according to their own native code. The same was true of the Hanse Bureau at Bruges, a city in which, after all, in view of the powerful competition prevailing there, a pronounced monopoly was certain to be curbed to some extent. Here the League merely possessed ware-rooms, while their agents lived privately among the burghers. The right of holding court in the Carmelite monastery was conceded to them, and there, too, they administered their affairs. In Novgorod, however, the conditions were entirely different. In view of the uncivilized condition and the national prejudices of the Russians, the greatest care had to be exercised in all intercourse with the natives, in order that the existence of the entire Hanseatic colony might not be endangered. Consequently, this intercourse was regulated with great circumspection and in all detail, both by the Diet of the Hanseatic League and by the chiefs of the Bureau. It was, however, in Bergen, Norway, that northernmost station of the Hansa, that the most interesting conditions prevailed. Here, that is, in Norway, the German merchant, by means of money or arms, gradually drove all competitors, including Englishmen, from the field, and in 1350 succeeded in establishing, in the most favorably situated and liveliest city of the land, Bergen, the last of his numerous bureaus, a bureau which maintained itself, though in somewhat deteriorated form, until the 18th century. This station, created at a late period of Hanseatic expansion, bears testimony to the colonial genius of the German merchants of the League, and affords a glimpse into their business methods. It may therefore be deserving of a more detailed consideration. Twenty-one farms, or granges, belonging to as many Hanse towns, dotted the shore. Each of these, surrounded by trees and lawns, covered considerable space, and included spacious granaries and dwellings, most of which served also as warehouses. Each grange had its dock, where ships could conveniently land and discharge their goods. The entire space thus occupied by the Hanse was enclosed by a wall, beyond which, and running parallel with it, was so-called Schustelgasse, a street occupied by German artisans, who, though permanently settled there, nevertheless remained closely in touch with their German brethren of the bureau. Every bureau had its shooting, a spacious windowless room which depended for light and air upon a hole in the roof which likewise served as a vent for the smoke issuing from the hearth it was in this room that the agents of the hansa merchants assembled to debate on judicial or mercantile affairs during the long winter evenings the families of the agents as the assistants and apprentices of the resident factors were pleasantly termed congregated there each group at its own particular rough-hewn wooden table to indulge in strong drink and pleasant gossip 
when the interest of the entire colony was to be discussed, the elder Leute, seniors, from every grange, would meet in the shooting belong to Bremen, and called Zum Mantel. This assemblage was called the Council of Eighteen, the representatives of Lübeck enjoying the greatest distinction and wielding the greatest influence among them by reason of the hegemony exercised by his native town. When matters of particular importance arose, or in case of a serious dispute, the affair at issue was usually referred to the Bergerfahren Collegium, the town council, or more frequently to the general convention of the Hansa at Lübeck. The expense of maintaining the colony, in view of the almost monastic simplicity of life prevailing there, and the large membership, were naturally small. In its zenith it probably numbered about three thousand persons who were subjected to strict laws, as strict indeed as those of any camp or monastery. No woman was permitted within the colony, and no person was permitted out of doors after sundown, unless, indeed, he wished to run the gauntlet of the fierce watchdogs, which guarded the reservations of the settlers. The members and employees of the Hansa who resided here were not permitted to marry Norwegian women, in order that their special rights and privileges might not be endangered through intermixture with the natives. How considerable were these special rights, the reader may determine from the fact that, during the weekly markets, the members of the Hansa bureaus had the streets barricaded by powerful fellows who permitted no one to interfere with the valuable privilege of priority conceded to the Hanses in the matter of barter. Naturally enough, the purchasing price of goods was arbitrarily set by the latter under these conditions, while the fixing of the selling price, in the absence of all competition, was a matter of course. That the exercise of such pressure sometimes disturbed the serenity of the Norwegians can readily be conjectured, especially when it is considered that the average Northman is by no means indisposed to have a little brush with his neighbour now and then. But in such an event the Germans usually gave tit for tat, and that with a vengeance. On one occasion they killed a bishop in the presence of the king. At various other times they burned monasteries over the heads of the inmates, and frequently they sheltered criminals or demolished entire dwellings in order to obtain kindling wood speedily and conveniently. Only by means of concord among themselves and strict exclusiveness could the Hanses for centuries maintain their position upon that inhospitable and thinly peopled shore. The novice, who usually entered the service of the Hansa at the age of twelve, was compelled to serve an apprenticeship of seven years, during which his duties consisted also in cooking, cleaning, and washing for, and in waiting upon, the older clerks. Thereafter he advanced to the position of journeyman, his inauguration being attended by festive, highly suggestive, and, to the beholder, amusing ceremonies. These ceremonies began with a great drinking bout, arranged at the youth's expense. The next feature of the program was entitled Das Staupenspiel in Paradies, the walloping in paradise, a procedure to which every apprentice was exposed annually, and to which on this occasion he bade a final farewell. This part of the ceremony consisted in setting apart a space enclosed within birch boughs, on entering which the blindfolded and scantily attired youth, who was to be initiated into the order of journeymen, was thoroughly trounced by quote-unquote, angels of paradise, in the form of lusty companions, who were unusually unsparing of the rod. A festive procession through the streets followed. It was led by two fantastically attired youngsters, who impersonated a Norwegian peasant and his wife, and whose duty it was to play tricks upon the sightseers and to amuse them. 
After a baptism in the sea, the unfortunate youth, who figured as the hero of this festive, was subjected to a procedure akin to that of roasting a herring in the flue, and it is singular enough that the records show only one case of death by suffocation consequent upon this ordeal. Good days, however, now followed upon evil ones, and the youthful novitiate was feted and inaugurated by his companions and made to forget the sufferings and hardships of his initiation. Many other pastimes were indulged in by the members of the bureaus, which, however, cannot be touched upon here. Suffice it to say that they were characterized by the humor and roughness of the age. Despite repeated attempts of the Hansa and of the several cities to put an end to these sports, they nevertheless continued to be practiced for centuries, upon the rather plausible plea that they served as a wholesome training for the mercantile youth. Never before or since, however, has the pedagogy of the rod found so thoroughgoing an application as here. One of the busiest centers of Hanseatic activity remains to be touched upon, namely the small tongue of land near Scanor and Falsterbo, and constituting an appendage of the larger peninsula of Skone or Shonen. The once prosperous stretch of beach here referred to is now a desert tract of land, the furrows and ruins on which are the only relics of the busy commercial life once prevailing. After the herring had during the 10th and 11th centuries visited the Pomeranian coast in great shoals, it changed its course to the above-mentioned region of the Sound. The Hansas were not slow to avail themselves of this circumstance. They succeeded in securing a practical ownership of this most valuable district of Denmark, thereby demonstrating how incredibly incompetent the princes of the land were at that time as regards the utilization of their natural resources. These princes actually granted to several German cities, and moreover to each individually, the right to establish reservations here, the so-called Witten, consisting on fenced enclosures on the coast, within which were erected vendors and fish booths, dwellings, and even churches, all under the administration of special governors appointed by the Germans. From this point the herring grounds were readily accessible. The fishing lasted from July until October, and during this time merchants, fishermen, and coopers resorted here by thousands to fish as well as to salt, smoke, pack, and load the produce of the net. In connection with this industry there were held in the immediate vicinity much frequented annual markets, the distributing centers for home consumption. At the beginning of the fifteenth century the capricious fish suddenly took another direction, visiting the coast of Holland, to the people of which he thenceforth became as lucrative a source of revenue as he had been to the Hanses. It has been said that Amsterdam, with all its wealth, is built upon herrings, and a similar statement could once be applied with equal justice to the Hansa cities of the Baltic. Concerning the characteristic methods of conducting trade, it may be well here to add that during the distant period here under consideration, a so-called commission business could scarcely be said to exist, and this is true also of speculation in the narrower sense. While buying and selling on time were not infrequent, especially in the grain market, the transactions were upon an infinitely smaller scale than as conducted at present, when, as the saying goes, goods is sold a dozen times before it is actually available. The unsound methods at present in vogue, based as they are upon fluctuations in price, were then scarcely known. Goods in exchange for goods, or its equivalent in money, was the motto of the Hanseatic merchant, who, however, was by no means always entirely guiltless of fraudulent operations. 
Often enough the lowermost layers of herring in the keg consisted of spoiled goods, and not infrequently a bale of linen had to be returned from station to station to the place whence it was sent in order that it might be re-examined as to quantity and quality. In these transactions the crafty dealer usually preferred to take advantage of the proverbial simplicity of the Norwegian. The scope of the Hansa trade was greater than one would imagine. It was greater, for example, than that of the maritime towns of Germany for the period immediately preceding the era of steam navigation, that is, about 1830. The fish trade was at that early period far more brisk, partly because the herring then visited the shores of the Baltic, and partly because the church laws relative to abstinence from meat during the fasts were rigidly observed by all the states of Christian Europe. A few figures will serve vividly to illustrate this change. In 1855, 3,700 kegs of herring were imported by way of Lübeck, as against 33,000 kegs for the period 500 years previous, and in the year of war, 1369, despite the embargo with Denmark, a great consumer, the exports of herring from 30 Hanseatic ports yielded a sum of 130 million marks, 40 million of which fell to the share of Hamburg, then a much smaller city than Lübeck. It is natural, in the light of these commercial conditions, that industry, and handicraft also, must have greatly flourished. In those days there were twice as many bakers at Lübeck as at present. The coopers also, in view of the great demand for herring kegs, were in high repute, and scarcely less so the brewers, who at that time greatly excelled their South German competitors. The beer of Hamburg or Rostock was never absent from a northern feast. Nearly all the cities from Livonia to the mouth of the Weser were surrounded by gardens of hops, and Hamburg especially owed its rapid rise during the 14th century chiefly to its brewers, at times 500 or more in number, 126 of whom supplied the market of Amsterdam alone. Not only representatives of the higher industrial arts, such as goldsmiths, metal workers, picture carvers, paternoster makers, and altar makers, but shoemakers and other handicraftsmen were to be found in the far north, which at that time was still somewhat deficient in these matters. There is report of a worthy shoemaker who, after sojourning in Russia, repaired to Stockholm, where he entered the service of a knight, and thence to Santiago de Compostela, where he wrought for pilgrims. All these trades were divided into guilds and sequester in certain streets or localities, and it was long before they were permitted to participate in the city government, which rested solely in the hands of the great landlords and merchant princes. In the fourteenth century, however, following the example of the South German communities, the quote-unquote rebellious guilds arose also in the Hanse towns and inaugurated that far-reaching democratic movement akin to the war of the classes in ancient rome the guilds demanded a seat and a voice in the municipal councils and made the payment of their quota dependent upon this concession most of the northern cities experienced bloody insurrections at this time and the hangman was very busy now the victory was with the patricians and anon with the plebeians and the contest was continually renewed with changing fortune after holding aloof for some time, the Hanseatic League finally took part in this purely internal affair of the several cities, and always in favor of the patrician party, in this way assuming a function originally foreign to its purpose. The movement was a perfectly natural and justifiable one. 
though originally subject to service and tribute on the part of bishop, cloister, or prince, the condition of the tradesman changed with the establishment of the principle that long unchallenged residence in a city ensured personal freedom to the individual, a privilege which in those days of marked class discrimination was shared only by the burgher and the monk. Among the two last-mentioned classes even the low-born individual could rise by his own efforts. Here neither prejudice nor privilege interfered with the free exercise of native talent. Many a poor apprentice in the Bureau of Bergen eventually became the progenitor of a long race of distinguished merchants, and some of these families are flourishing in Europe today. It is but natural that the handicraftsman, once released from his bonds, should have desired to share these privileges, more particularly as the old aristocratic regime constantly became more assertive and presumptuous. It is necessary also to consider that the former social position of the artisan should not be measured by present standards, for the difference in the educational status of the classes was not nearly so pronounced then as now, and the workman, moreover, was characterized by a spirit often as chivalrous as that of the commercial magnate. There is a well-authenticated case of a shoemaker challenging another member of his craft to a duel, which, by the way, had a fatal termination, without exciting either serious comment or ridicule. History teaches that where commerce and industry flourish, art also secures its triumphs. The glorious Gothic cathedrals of the Hanseatic cities bear eloquent testimony to this truth. The Northlander who entered the Trave or the Vistula and beheld the multitude of soaring church spires must have felt as did once the German pilgrim to Rome, says a modern investigator. The principal representative and patron of this art culture, here as elsewhere during the Middle Ages, was the church. But the splendid town halls, as well as the few private mansions preserved, with their step-like aggregation of gables, afford convincing evidence alike of the solid appreciation of art as of the love of splendor, which characterized that distant generation. Certain it is that they greatly surpassed us in the domain of Gothic architecture. Owing to the strict adherence to the Catholic dogma, a scientific development in the modern sense was, of course, impossible in those days, and although most of the parish churches had their schools also, these were commonly designed chiefly for the sons of patricians, whose schooling usually embraced a little Latin and some reading, writing, and singing. Not infrequently, the only scholar in the place was the town clerk, the forerunner of our present recorder. The robust, healthy German of that day, yielding to a tendency which has characterized our people from immemorial times, preferred the more to surrender himself to a life of solid comfort and good cheer. The Middle Age was one which inclined to favor the enjoyment of life. It is but necessary to consider the variegated costumes, rich in color, whose ultimate extravagances necessitated special dress regulations as well as the tournaments, the numerous archer festivals, and the frequent masquerades, to realize that the people of that day appreciated the good things of life. On the occasion of baptisms, weddings, and other domestic events, great feasts were frequently arranged in the house of the guilds, or even in the town hall. And many princely visitors were here also entertained at the expense of the municipal budget. The administration of the salarage of the municipal council was also then considered a far more respectable post than now. All these facts attest the prosperity of the Hanseatic towns. 
fortunes of 100,000 marks were by no means exceptional, and were often invested in neighbouring knightly estates, fiefs, thereby sometimes securing to the owner an eventual admission to the ranks of the nobility. At one time, that is, after the great Hanseatic War, the city of Lübeck owned the entire dukedom of Lauenburg. The constitution of these municipalities provided for a council consisting of from twelve to twenty-four members, who, though elected for life, alternated in terms of office, ranging from two to three years. These members had the privilege of appointing their successors from among the eligible families of the Hansa town. The heads of the council consisted of from two to four burgomasters, who presided at the meetings. The position of member of the council was a purely honorary one. The duties comprised the administration of municipal affairs, of military and judicial affairs, of the archives, the exercise of police supervision over the market, the marine service, and the guilds, and, most important of all, the administration of the finances. They fixed the taxes, for which frequently no receipt was given or demanded the money on such occasions being deposited unnoticed in a boxed set apart for the purpose a proof that the payment of taxes at that time was regarded as a point of honour by the burgher and without suspicion by the magistrate the general character of the municipal life of the hansa towns in those days has been well compared by a modern writer to a family household the workman regarded himself within his circle as an official of the city a fact shown by the use of the word emter offices to designate the guild hence the strong municipal patriotism which animated these burghers and which compensates in some degree for the absence of that great political enthusiasm which is derived from the consciousness of a united country a quaint genre picture of the time preserved at bremen represents a native of the latter city and another from lubeck sitting together in a tavern and disputing as to the comparative merits of their respective towns the controversy reaches its climax by one of the disputants declaring stolidly that he too might quote unquote, master such words and taking a long and mighty draught the separate towns usually upon a request of the lubeck council would send their deputies to confer jointly upon matters affecting the league these conferences or diets usually being held in some vendish city on no occasion however were all the towns of the league represented at these conferences their constitution was absolutely free from all theoretical or rigid forms or ordinances whoever found that his interests were especially affected by the subject under discussion set representatives to the diet of the league and these usually discharged their duties faithfully without shirking the long and arduous trip even during the winter season the conferences held in this way were probably wider in their scope than those of any other power of the time usually however not political but commercial matters were discussed there was no common treasury whenever money was required an export duty was levied with which absolute compliance was demanded an infraction of the laws of the league was punishable by a fine and in extreme cases by exclusion from the hansa a sentence necessarily involving the commercial isolation and eventual bankruptcy of the delinquent city bremen it is true once withstood the consequences of the hanseatic ban for more than fifty years but this was before the extraordinary extension of the hanseatic power consequent upon the danish war from all this it appears that the constitution of the hansa was a very slack but elastic one 
which easily adapted itself to the exigencies of the moment. A charter of a Hanseatic constitution has never existed, proof in itself of the desire to afford as much latitude as possible in the construction of the laws. Theory is regarded as valueless, immediate facts and interests are all in all. The supremacy of Lübeck, for example, was never formally recognized by the other cities of the League. Thus did the Hansa flourish until the close of the Middle Ages. With the discovery of America, and of the passage to India, trade was diverted into new channels. It became transoceanic, and, not without some culpability on the part of the Hansas themselves, fell into the hands of the now more favorably situated countries of Western Europe, Spain, Portugal, France, the Netherlands, and finally England. Equally detrimental to the Hansa was the political transformation wrought at this time, especially as regards the rapidly growing power of the princes, who, with all the influence at their command, sought to abrogate all special privileges and to foster a levelling process in order that they alone might be exalted. One city after another sank into utter dependence upon the sovereign rulers of the respective provinces, who in their turn began to take an interest in economic affairs, thus contributing to widen the breach between these respective cities and the League. It was under these circumstances that Gustavus Vaza declared of the Hansa that its teeth were falling out like those of an old woman. The Hollanders especially had long been converted from allies into formidable rivals. The most important and decisive factor of this decadence, however, was the victorious opposition to the Hanseatic monopoly now brought to bear by the hitherto commercially oppressed nations, England and Russia, who simply closed the doors of the bureaus and abrogated the privileges of the German merchants of the League. The condition of the Hansa was akin to that of a healthy, vigorous tree, set in poor soil, and deriving its sustenance from the weakness of the home rulers, and the primitive or defective economic conditions of foreign countries. As soon as these negative medieval conditions were swept away by the storms of the Reformation, the tree gradually but surely fell into decay. With this later stage there is associated the historic tragedy of Jürgen Wüllenweva, that genial and daring democratic innovator who in an endeavour to conquer denmark in order to restore the prestige of the hansa was betrayed by his patrician fellow burghers and hanged the hansa though in a stage of increasing decrepitude now lingered on until the final crash came in sixteen thirty when all the members dissolved their allegiance to the league only the three hansa towns of hamburg bremen and lübeck renewed the compact which, however, today is purely nominal. The Hansa had fulfilled its great historic mission. It had impressed the stamp of German culture upon the North, given German commerce the supremacy over that of all other nations, protected the northern and eastern boundaries of the empire at a time when the imperial power was impotent and the state disrupted, and maintained and extended the prestige of the German flag in the northern seas said a great german writer when all on land was steeped in particularism the hansa our people upon the sea alone remained faithful to the german spirit and to the german tradition End of section twenty four